You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Just ahead on the program, here comes the big gathering in Jackson Hole. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where a decision by the UK's energy regulator in the coming days will help tell us how high inflation is likely to go later this year. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. Is inflation near peaking in South Korea? I'm Amy Morris in Washington. The White House has had a few political wins. Will that move the needle with voters? That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. everybody. I'm John Tucker. Let's start today's program with the coming annual gathering in Jackson Hole that officially kicks off this coming Thursday. Bloomberg Global Economics Policy Editor Mike McKee is among those going, and he joins us now for some insights. So you're going to say it's really important this year because you're going? Uh, it's important You have every to justify your trip. Um, and, well, for, uh, so for, for people who don't know, we're not talking about going to do some early skiing or you know, fly fishing. This well, is a symposium of sorts. Shh, don't tell the boss. Okay. We might have some fishing. <laughs> uh, this is the Kansas City Fed's annual uh, economic symposium, started back in 1978, moved to Jackson Hole in uh, 1981, I believe, and has been going on ever since. Uh, they did it virtually the last couple of years. So this is a return to Jackson Lake Lodge in Grand Teton National Park. It's uh, central bankers and academic economists from all over. They present like really boring papers nobody understands, and then there's like a few highlights where they say stuff that could move markets potentially. 
Well, if I were going to be honest, I'd totally agree with you. Uh, I don't think anybody there would say that there are papers that people don't understand all because right. all those people understand it. it there is a, a misconception about Jackson Hole that it is someplace where central bankers come to discuss the issues that face them and figure out how they're going to attack them. It's really an academic conference. Papers are submitted on topics related to monetary policy, and people do sort of exploratory work that sets the stage for thinking about ways to do things. But the average person probably would not, if you don't have an economics degree, would not understand a lot of it. Uh, and it is not as dramatic or exciting as people make it out to be. But by tradition, every year the Fed chairman gives a keynote address. And most years it falls under the category of nice to see you, glad you're all here. This is a really important topic. Uh, but a couple of times, uh, most notably with Ben Bernanke uh, during the great financial crisis, uh, he laid out strategies for the Fed uh, in monetary policy to deal with a financial crisis. And there is a hope or a feeling or a thought that Jay Powell might do something similar at this meeting uh, a week on uh, Friday. Okay. Where are we right now with the the economic data. I mean, there's um, all sorts of speculation, 50 or 75 basis points at the next Federal Reserve meeting that's coming up, what, in, in September. Um, and yet we've got this data that seems to indicate the rate of inflation may be slowing at this point. So I'm kind of wondering, has the Fed done its job or... <laughs> <laughs> inflation data well, that we're getting is working against the Fed. There's a message that Jay Powell is going to want to deliver if he's going to talk about things like that. Is that no, we're not anywhere near close to done yet. Uh, the markets took the idea that they could do 50 basis points instead of 75, uh, which was just laid out as a kind of a talking point uh, by Jay Powell on July 27th. They, they took it as a sort of a hint that the Fed was going to pivot. And they look at some of the slowing economic data and they say, well, the Fed's going to have to back off and next year they're going to have to cut rates. And that's not going to happen. Uh, the Fed is committed to keeping interest rates higher for longer to make sure that inflation is squeezed out of the economy. So if you but want But I mean, that, that data that we recently got, is, is that because of Fed policy or because of something else? I mean, well, how do you know when it's the policy's working and done? That's part of the problem. If you're a policymaker, you don't have real-time confirmation because all the economic data is by nature backward-looking. So you're trying to extrapolate from what you see and figure out what that means six, eight, 10, 12 months down the road. Uh, now, we've seen inflation ease up a little bit, one month's data, and a lot of that had to do with energy prices, and energy prices aren't anything that the Fed deals with. Now, the Fed has crimped housing, and we've seen declines in new home sales and existing home sales and, and, and housing starts. So that is starting to affect the economy. But we're only just starting to see the impacts. And that's one of the discussions they have in their meetings is how far do we want to go? Because we want to go as far as we can without damaging the economy. And uh, nobody quite knows where that is. Maybe it's something that Powell would address. All right. So who knows best, the the, the markets or um, the policy makers? Because it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems there's a bit of a disconnect between <laughs> uh, those two, the well, thinking. Well, there's an old saying, don't fight the Fed. And the young people who are in the markets these days are fighting the Fed. Uh, they haven't 
been around. You uh, don't fight the Fed because they make the policy and they have pretty much unlimited funds when it comes to. But what's happened over the years is, you know, what people jokingly refer to as the Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, and and, uh, now Powell put, where if markets get disrupted enough, the Fed will come into the markets and save them. Uh, the Fed seems to be of the mind now that they're not going to do that because the markets aren't going to need saving. They don't. They're functioning just fine. It's just maybe that some people are losing money uh, on this or that trade. So they want to make sure inflation to them is the worst enemy, and they want to make sure that they get it out of the economy. So they want to deliver the message. That's what they're going to do. Mike, thanks very much. We'll be hosting Bloomberg Surveillance uh, live for you from the Jackson Hole Gallery here on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television as well. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the U.K. braces for a surge in energy prices. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, inflation and monetary policy in South Korea take center stage. But first, despite hitting double digits in July, inflation in the U.K. still hasn't passed a peak. An upcoming decision by the country's energy regulator will play a major role in deciding how much higher it's going to go. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, since 2019, the UK's energy regulator Ofgem has been setting maximum prices that energy firms can charge households for electricity and natural gas. The next price rise comes into effect in October, and in the coming days we'll find out just how much it will be rising by. It's a move that will be a major driver of inflation in the UK for the latter months of this year. For more on this, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Renewable Energy and Climate Change reporter Will Mathis and our EMEA economics and government correspondent Lizzie Burden. Welcome to you both. Will, can you explain first of all what actually is the price cap and is it the maximum price that consumers can expect to pay this year? So this is a really good question and something that's pretty widely misunderstood. The price cap is a tool that the you know Ofgem, the energy regulator, uses to cap the, like the unit price of energy. So for every megawatt hour of electricity and gas that you use in your home, the energy suppliers can only charge you a certain rate per per unit of energy. But they, when they're communicating this, they know that no one really knows what a kilowatt hour of electricity is. And if they go come out and say, oh, we've capped energy prices at 5p per kilowatt hour, you know, that means nothing to anyone, including, you know, me. And I write about this stuff all the time. So what they do is they take that cap and then they multiply it by the average energy use across the country over a year and then they put out that number to everyone and that's what all the headlines are and so they say for a whole year the average energy bill in the country is going to be you know whatever it is most recently it was 1900 pounds and we're it seems expecting like a mere it. a mere dot on the the background now such a small price now yeah. we're talking about something that's much larger so, yeah, yeah. So that they use it as a way to communicate what people can expect their bills will be, but um, it is a bit more complicated. But it is just to kind of limit how much um, suppliers can charge, and they want to make sure that's in line with what it is costing those suppliers to actually buy energy, and so that they're not just you know making obscene profits. So, how exactly is the cap calculated then? Basically, they um, you know 
calculate what it costs the suppliers and the the absolutely number one thing is wholesale gas prices gas in the uk sets the price of electricity gas is the way that the vast majority of homes get their heating in the winter so you know there are other things like taxes and certain policies that get funded off of bills but the the really big thing on the bills and the thing that is fluctuating right now is wholesale energy prices and those are changing so much right now that it's uh, pretty difficult to you know know you know in the beginning of the year what the cap is going to be at the end of the year because the energy prices just look so much different right now amid just record volatility we're seeing in the market how much is the price cap expected to rise by for october so for october they're expecting it to go up to about 3,600 pounds. And that is for an estimate for bills for the year from October 1 for the next 12 months. That in that period, they would estimate that it would be about 3,600 pounds. Um, it's expected to go up even more in the you know first quarter of next year. And so for like the winter period, the six months of winter from like October to March, the bills are expected to have tripled from what it was a year ago. Lizzie Burton, turning to you, this is going to be so important for the broader inflation picture. We had that blistering number in the past few days, 10.1%, the inflation rate in July. This is going to determine how much higher that goes. Yeah, we're in double digits already. Economists got it wrong again. This is a new 40-year high. It's more than five times the Bank of England's target. And as you imply, we're not even at the peak yet. So the Bank of England had forecast that when the energy price cap rises in October, peak inflation was going to be above 13%. But given that we're already above 10%, that could be even higher now. City economists are saying that peak inflation could be 15% in the first quarter of 2023. Um, But remember, it's not just about energy. In the data, the UK inflation data that we've just had, the main driver actually was food. Uh, And actually as well, it was quite broad based, this inflation. The next biggest drivers were recreation and culture. You had a big contribution from services. So the worry for the Bank of England is that this inflation surge is going to be long lasting because it's spreading beyond energy across the economy as people's inflation expectations keep running themselves. So what sort of challenges does this present now for the Bank of England? It's such a difficult moment for the Bank of England because, as officials explained after their last meeting, they're having to inflict pain on consumers in order to bring down inflation. So they've already done one jumbo rate hike in August, 50 basis points. Now our economists at Bloomberg Economics and many others are expecting another 50 basis point hike in September. And the Bank of England has said that this is going to cause a long, shallow recession the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1990s. Um, Former Monetary Policy Committee member Andrew Sentence has said that the key rate might have to go up to 3 to 4% uh, because policymakers at the BOE have got so behind the curve. Uh, And the other thing is that this inflation is swallowing up wage growth, which 
really makes the issue so much more pressing for the Bank of England. Um, but because of the recession risk, that's what's worrying investors. And you've seen the yield curve inverting the most since the financial crisis because of the pain that the necessary rate cuts will inflict on the economy. The, the energy price cap is something that we, we talk about so much. It is a major part of the debate that's happening at the moment on the political front, the Tory leadership debate as well. What are politicians saying about how they're going to tackle high energy prices? Well, finally, for the first time in ages, Keir Starmer, the opposition Labour Party leader, managed to cut through with his proposal to continue the windfall tax and freeze energy bills this winter. And so in the hustings between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss to be the next Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister this week, they had to respond to this proposal. Rishi Sunak ruled it out. He said that he would target support at the poorest households. Liz Truss said she doesn't want to throw money at a short-term fix, but she wouldn't really be drawn on how else she would help other than repeating her promise of tax cuts. Okay, thank you very much to Bloomberg's Will Mathis and Lizzie Burden for those insights. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. John. Stephen, thanks a lot. Just a hit on Bloomberg Daybreak weekend. Here comes that big central bank meeting in South Korea. And I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Global look at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The pressure is on central banks in Asia and South Korea in focus right now. For more, let's head to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. John, the cost of living in South Korea is soaring. Last month, consumer inflation soared to the highest level in 24 years. And it's raised questions as to whether or not the Bank of Korea will, in the week ahead, be so bold as to raise rates by another 50 basis points as it did in July. For a closer look at the BOK meeting and the South Korean economy overall, we're joined by Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor. Kathleen, thanks so much for for joining us for the discussion. Uh, we've seen four rate hikes from the BOK this year and quite a lot of aggressive movement there. What are we expecting this time? Well, you know, the last rate hike was 50 basis point, and that was a, a the definitely the more aggressive move. So now the question is, will they do another one? You just mentioned consumer prices up 6.3% from a year earlier. Um, that's a, a slight acceleration from the month before. They're... Uh, I think it's the highest since 1994. So they are definitely in a position where they want to get inflation down. Uh, and recently, however, uh, Cheng Yong-ri, the new, relatively new head of the Bank of Korea, signaled uh, a move maybe of 25, even with the high inflation. There's enough clouds, you know, dark clouds over the uh, 
Korean economy as there are many economies now in the world, I think they're getting a little less ready and eager to do the more aggressive hikes. They were one of the first central banks to begin tightening, I recall. And as with any central bank, it's trying to strike a balance, right, between tackling inflation on one hand and supporting economic growth. This is a very unique economy because it's so strongly export driven but at the same time there are a lot of internal things here that make it a little complex the household sector is very heavily levered right Mm -hmm. you've got food inflation that's beginning to pop up Mm -hmm. there are labor problems that the new government is having to deal with so it's a complicated situation i think for the bok and it's interesting because one of the reasons they're having those labor problems is because of rising prices that's a big part of it you know we think more maybe about um food unrest in some poorer countries uh, but uh, in in Korea that's that's gotten people off their feet I think it's that's one of the reasons why coming back to what the tone has been lately that uh the, the the moves they're going to they're going to keep moving they're going to fight but the moves are going to be gradual that seems to be their message now they hope to get I believe to about 2.75 to three percent by the end of the year so they that means they have some more to run but uh, again maybe the 50 basis point hike isn't quite as uh, probable particularly after you see the slowdown in China And we're seeing action on the fiscal side, too. The finance minister recently was talking about uh, cutting spending pretty significantly. I think for 10 years in a row, um, you've been adding to extra spending uh, year in, year out with the previous administration. But the new administration wants to cut spending and get a lot more disciplined. How might that impact inflation? Well, if you cut back on spending, it's you know you're, there's, there's money, you, you add stimulus or subtract it. So the question is, I guess, where they would be uh, cutting their spending? Who would they be pulling back on? And I don't think it's entirely cu- clear yet exactly how that is uh, is going to play out. So uh, for the immediate future, I think that the BOK and what they do, they're going to keep an eye on that, and they're very supportive of that. But I think that it's right now it's going to be, again, more growth. Uh, And it's not just China slowing down, of course, that they're looking at. They're looking at aggressive rate hikes by the Fed. You mentioned the Fed. It's interesting because we just had the Fed minutes recently. And one of the things that I took away from it is a reminder that monetary policy works with a lag. We're going to need some time to be able to see more clearly how the tightening is playing out in the economy. And I would imagine the BOK is in the exact same situation. They certainly are, and that's another reason why uh, presumably they have to be sending out the message that they're going to keep hiking, they're ready to hike, but they've also stated publicly that this is one of the things they're watching very closely. But certainly Korea, what is it, the 11th biggest country in the world, it's the fourth biggest exporter, so it's something they're very much in tune to. And then something uh, that's in the background for everybody, the war in Ukraine, the fact that it's not going away, the fact that uh, commodity prices are being affected, and that washes over their economy too. Mm. All right, Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. An interesting discussion. Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Brian and Doug, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, President Biden has had some big wins lately. How much traction can he get out of it as politics gets more fractious ahead of the key midterm elections? I'm John Tucker. This is This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. 
President Biden has had some big wins lately. And the question for him is, how much traction can he get out of all of this? For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. Thank you, John. We are looking at the possibility that the Democrats may be feeling uh, some momentum, a question that's especially important for President Biden right now ahead of the midterms. Bloomberg White House reporter Jordan Fabian joins me now. He's bringing us some insight. Jordan, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me on, Amy. Now, let's start with the laundry list of wins for President Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill, Uh, Signs that inflation may be starting to moderate. Um, That analysis that was in The New York Times this past week asking the question if the Biden administration is at a turning point. Uh, Let me ask you, is the Biden administration at a turning point? I think it's fair to say it is. All these wins, especially the Inflation Reduction Act, weren't thought possible just weeks ago. And and they did uh, manage to push these through, not to mention in a 50-50 Senate where they're, they really don't have a margin for error. So uh, this is a real, these are some real achievements for the White House. The, the issue is, is it coming too late for them uh, to turn prospects around for Democrats in the November midterm election? They really need these wins to try to generate momentum for them politically. Uh, but the problem is Americans are still worried about the state of the economy and inflation, which, while slow down, last month is still uh, high compared to last year. And so, you know, Americans are still uh, dealing with those problems and are likely to have those things on their mind when they go to the ballot box in the fall. That's kind of what they're up against, they being the Democrats, I mean, when they do have some sort of significant legislative win, there's that lag time between when the win happens and when the rank and file voters actually feel the impact of that. That's right. And look, Amy, even in uh, other administrations, it's not unusual for the president's party to take a beating in the first midterm election after the president was elected. Look at what happened to President Barack Obama. He got Obamacare through the Congress, his signature achievement, and yet Democrats still lost in in November of uh, of 2010. Uh, Donald Trump's Republican Party lost seats. Uh, just two years after he was elected as well. Uh, the one recent outlier was George W. Bush, uh, and that was, but that was during the midst of the Iraq War and only one year after the 9-11 attack. So uh, it, this is just something that happens in American politics. And while the White House has amassed a lot of wins and they're going to try to put people out there and, and get Democrats excited to vote, there's not much they can do to uh, really change the political dynamics here uh, that we've seen for the last few decades. Yeah, I understand that the White House is going to conduct that sort of um, popularity blitz, I guess, a a PR blitz where they're going to go all over the country, sending out the cabinet secretaries and the president himself and sort of tout their accomplishments. Um, My question about that is, does something like that normally change hearts and minds? I mean, letting people know what you've done is one thing, but actually thinking you're going to get somebody to vote for you who might not have voted before or might not be interested in voting Democrat, that seems to be a harder sell. It seems unlikely it's going to help in a major way in shifting the political dynamic of this election. But Democrats are hopeful that it can help around the margin. In particular, they're hopeful that it could help excite Democrats who maybe were down on President Joe Biden to get excited and, and go out and vote for Democratic candidates for the House and Senate in November. 
And they're not only banking on the recent spate of wins, but also on harnessing Democratic voters' anger over the Supreme Court decision to end nationwide abortion rights. So uh, you can expect Democrats to talk about what they've done and then also try to set up this uh, dichotomy, this choice between them and a Republican Party they're going to seek to label as extreme. And they're going to use their opposition to the Inflation Adjustment Act, their position on abortion rights, and not to mention President Donald Trump, who's now embroiled in new legal problems and uh, making noise that he might even announce another run for the White House himself in the next few months. Now, let's talk about the primaries, Jordan. So far, they've seemed to be an exercise in seeing how much of a hold Donald Trump has on the Republican Party. A lot of people looking and comparing and contrasting this GOP candidate who has Trump backing versus that GOP candidate who does not. Uh, This past week, we saw Republicans getting primaried, which I guess is now a verb. Liz Cheney, the most high-profile example. So what does this say um, to the White House, and, and what are they worried about? Where are they more confident? What are they watching? Well, they're definitely watching these primaries closely, and you know, from from my sense of talking to people in the White House and in, in Democratic organizations, is that they prefer to have the more pro-Trump Republican as the nominee in a lot of these close races, because you know, I was talking earlier about that contrast they want to set up the the belief is that it's easier to do that when they're running against uh, you know Republican who's on the right wing of the party and is espoused all those beliefs that I talked about earlier and also has maybe disputed the results of the 2020 election. Uh, they think that's an easy uh, contrast to set up, and, and you're, you're going to see that in races like out in Arizona where there's a competitive Senate race uh, pitting uh, an incumbent Mark Kelly against uh, a Republican candidate, Blake Masters, who has expressed doubts about the election, and a number of other races, too. And the problem, Amy, though, is that a lot of these, in a lot of these races, those candidates might actually end up winning So on the Republican side. So uh, while you know, Democrats may have hoped that they've won, and in fact, uh, Democratic political organizations have even run ads supporting some of the you know, quote-unquote election deniers, uh, you know, they're, they're supporting candidates who might end up winning and having public office and holding the levers of power. And so uh, it, it's a risky gamble, but it's one that Democrats hope pay off. Let's take that a step further. Uh, we mentioned Liz Cheney earlier. She is one of those Republicans who was one of the biggest adversaries from the GOP for President Trump. She lost that primary, uh, but it doesn't look like she's done with politics. Just this past week, she's made a couple of announcements that make it sound like she is going to make sure her voice will continue to be heard. Did her losing that primary just light a fire in her belly? It certainly seemed to. Uh, Amy, she even alluded uh, in the past week to launching her own uh, presidential campaign, possibly something that she's thinking about. The, the the problem for her is though is that you know what the primaries on the Republican side have made pretty clear is that this is Donald Trump's Republican Party now. Voters on the Republican side seem to generally want these pro-Trump candidates. They they support candidates who express doubts or deny the results of the 2020 election. So what what is Liz Cheney's uh, position in the party at this point? Who could she appeal to? to win a nomination for the presidency, uh, that's a very small sliver of voters at this point on the Republican side nationwide. 
And we are talking with Bloomberg White House correspondent Jordan Fabian about whether the White House winds of late can move the needle at all with the midterms. Um, Jordan, there is a primary coming up in Florida. Uh, what are you going to be watching for? I know Ron DeSantis's name has been coming up more than once. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is uh, another person who's rumored to possibly want to run against Donald Trump uh, or, or, or seek the presidential nomination for the Republican Party in 2024. So you'll be looking closely at, you know, what, how he's going to perform. Is he, is he really going to, you know, sort of run away with it and demonstrate his strength? And also in the, in the weeks ahead, looking to, you know, New York State, where on the Democratic side, there's some incumbent on incumbent races uh, in New York City that you're, you're going to see some dynamics on the progressive versus establishment uh, wings of the party uh, running against each other. So those races will be interesting too to watch to see how that, uh, power struggle on the Democratic side plays out. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because, like you said, progressives versus the your 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 standard sort of establishment Democrats, and a lot of Democrats right now not too happy with President Biden's response on the Supreme Court abortion rights reversal. They say he's moved too slow on this. Is that going to come back to affect him? Yeah, that's it's certainly a dynamic that exists right now, Amy. Uh, a lot of the activists in the Democratic Party, you want to see a more forceful response to harness that energy and frustration that I was talking about earlier when it comes to the abortion rights issue. We've seen people like Vice President Kamala Harris really take the torch on this one and run with it, whereas Biden's remarks have been more subdued. However, we haven't seen that frustration translate into a lot of progressive victories against candidates from the more establishment wing or that you know Joe Biden has backed. In fact, we've seen a lot of those progressive challengers lose uh, to to uh, establishment figures. Uh, in the New York uh, race, where you're going to see one, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the House Democrats campaign arm, is facing a progressive challenger, but he's thought to be ahead in that race. Uh, even looking back to a, a primary in Texas where Henry Cuellar, who is a skeptic of abortion rights, uh, ended up beating a progressive challenger. Um, that that. That issue on the Democratic side hasn't seemed to have shifted the results of primaries, even though there is this frustration among some of the base voters about how President Biden has handled the issue. All right. We're going to watch it with you, Jordan. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Amy. Thanks. Jordan Fabian covers the White House for Bloomberg News, and that's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune into Balance of Power with David Weston, weekdays at noon Wall Street time, and Sound On with Joe Matthew, weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time, right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thanks a lot, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.